0: Good morning. It's my uh, 48th birthday today. Plus a few. Plus a few. Um, If you're new or haven't been here much, we've been in the Sermon on the Mount for a while. And uh, that's what we're going to do today. Four weeks ago, Uh, Nate spoke about prayer, the Lord's Prayer. And and, uh, three weeks ago, uh, Brian spoke about forgiveness, Brian Chesney. Um, Two weeks ago, Justin spoke about fasting, and last week, as Therese mentioned, he he went a little rogue and went back to the Old Testament first, but he circled back to the very last part of chapter 6, in The Sermon on the Mount, and he was he was drawing out some foreshadowing uh, from the Old Testament of things that Jesus talked about there. Let's start off today by reading the portion of this scripture that I think we can that I think we can tackle. I'm going to start in Matthew six. Uh, I'm going to start at verse 19. Familiar verses to most of us. But let's just, uh, let's go over this together. Matthew six nineteen. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Verse 22, The lamp of the body is the eye, If therefore your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, and I want you to remember that word, we're going to be coming back to it in a little while. If your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God, and Mammon. Verse 25. For this reason I say to you, do not be anxious for your life, as to what you shall eat, or what you shall drink, nor for your body, as to what you shall put on. Is not life more than food, and the body, and clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your Heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single cubit to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory did not clothe himself like one of these. But if God so raised the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow, is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more do so for you? little faith. Do not be anxious then, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or with what shall we clothe ourselves? For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek, for your Heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself each day has enough trouble of its own. Matthew 6. I don't know if uh, if any of you got them. Um, I wrote down the dozen or so scriptures that that we'll be looking at today. And uh, the reason they're handwritten is once more I had a, a computer printer glitch. So I went to tweak my, my sermon notes and uh, after I had shredded the previous version. And... Uh, they wouldn't print, so I hurriedly, I hurriedly hand scratched, and uh, that's where we are. But it's fine. It's fine. We're gonna we're gonna break this into a couple pieces, and and I I just say, you know, if you think about the passage we we just read, I think there's three main sections to it, although they're all tied together. The first one is treasure. Verses 19 through 21, it's about treasure, whether it's earthly or heavenly. And the, the next verses are about our eyes, what we see, how we see, our vision. And then um, I'll leave this one sort of by itself, verse 24. It's just a pure, simple statement by the Lord, not being able to serve God and mammon. And then after that, it's about anxiety and worry. So that's how, I'm, that's how I'm thinking of it. We're going to start with the treasure part, all right? You notice Jesus here, he said, he starts off and he tells us um, what not to do first. Don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth. He tells us what not to do. then the next verse, he tells us what to do. Lay up treasures for yourself in heaven. And then in the next verse, verse 21, he tells us the why. Why, why do we do, why do we lay up treasures in heaven? And why do we not lay him up on earth? Because he's just telling us this basic principle: where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. You know, maybe before we get in very far here, I think it's good to maybe think about the summary of the Sermon of the Mount so far. Even if you guys thinking about that, we've been at it for wow, we've been at it since first of the year, right? We're whipping right through. We've almost made it through two chapters. Um, but if you've had to summarize the, the sermon on the mount into just a few words here's what i think they are maybe you have a maybe you have a little bit different view but here's what i think the sermon on the mount is really boils down to god wants your heart god wants your heart and not just that he wants your whole heart i think if you could distill down what was jesus telling his disciples and his potential disciples, and whoever the rest of the multitude was with him up there on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee when he spoke this sermon, the greatest sermon that's ever been spoken, this was the principle. God wants. In fact, I'm going to go further. God requires our heart. The Sermon on the Mount, and I know I'm a bit repetitious probably from other times that I've spoken recently, this is not a this is not a pep rally that Jesus gave his disciples. And it's not just a bunch of lofty statements that we all go, oh yeah, well that preaches good, but you know, hey, nobody can really live that way. I think the very words of Christ, he is, he is describing what true believers' life should look like. All right? And he's and he's putting a few shots across their bow and saying, remember this, remember this, remember this. God wants your heart. He wants your whole heart. What, ever, anyone ever heard this uh, this saying, one man's junk is another man's treasure? Heard that? We all know what it means. I mean, people, people treasure some mighty strange things, Trees, you know? People that collect Barbie dolls. People that collect baseball cards. I don't want to step on anybody's toes here. Once in a while, you'll read You see a news blurb. Someone just paid $2.3 million for the rarest baseball card or something. That's treasure to that person. That's a piece of cardboard with a paper on it, as far as I'm concerned. Might give you a couple bucks for it, but I wouldn't do that. But my point here is simply this. What establishes treasure? Treasure isn't something handed down from somewhere else. Treasure comes from right here. All right? If you... We decide what we treasure. Our heart naturally treasures something. And we if we go say, well, what's the value of something or the comparative value of something? Well, depends on how much of a treasure it is to anybody, right? We could, we could go down a list of all kinds of things and you might say, I don't care at all about that, and someone else here might care a lot about it, and vice versa. What Jesus is talking about, though, is is more, more dramatic than the difference between what, what we'd like to have to complete our collection or something like that. He's talking about this fundamental thing. If God's going to have your heart, your treasure's going to be in heaven. If your treasure is in heaven, God has your heart. And if your treasure is in heaven, you're holding out part of your heart. All right? This passage, this treasure part, has been interpreted, and you'll, you'll read and hear this a lot, that it's it's been sort of interpreted like Wealth is a bad thing, and therefore wealth is, you know, wealth is really to be avoided, but, but there's something very virtuous about being poor. You guys heard that? I mean, you'll see it. It's, it's kind of infiltrated through politics. It's an underlying principle of socialism, frankly. That's not what Jesus was talking about at all. He wasn't talking about whether you are wealthy or whether you are poor. He's talking about where your treasure is. It's a heart issue. And you could have a horrible heart issue with wealth and be wealthy. You could have a horrible heart issue with wealth and be poor. Okay? If it's what your heart treasured, if it's what it sought after, it's what it, what it strived for. Jesus said it's about the heart. Okay? I want to go to a different passage here in, uh, in Matthew. Let's, let's go over to uh, Matthew 19. And verse 23, you guys know this story. This is a... I want to be clear, Jesus made this statement. It's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Right? He says it right here in Matthew 23. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom the kingdom of heaven and I'll go on again I say to you it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven and when the disciples heard that they were astonished and they said well then who can be saved and he said God all things are possible I want to dispel the idea that wealth is sin wealth is not sin the love of wealth is all right and in this particular instance I think we can look and say why why is it hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven I want to point out one other thing that I never thought of until studying for this Uh, Jesus didn't say uh, someone in the kingdom of heaven couldn't be wealthy it's hard to enter if you're wealthy and why is that why is it because when when we have wealth We have the natural temptation to put all of our trust in what we've accrued, what we've piled up. If we can literally say, uh, my cares are taken care of, all all my needs are taken care of, and uh, there's nothing here that I can't afford to to do, and there's no uh, conceivable circumstance that looms ahead of me, that I don't have enough money in the bank, or enough wheat in the barn, or whatever it is that we've stored up. Um... It's pretty hard for that person to put their trust in God, right? That's why Jesus said it's hard, very hard. Let's go to another one. Uh, You guys know the parable of the sower. Let's go over to Matthew 13 real quickly. There are four outcomes in the parable of the sower, right? The one we're looking at here today is the third one. You know what happened? The sower sowed the seed. Let's look at the third one that Jesus talked about, which is in verse 22. It says this, And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world, and the deceitfulness of riches. Choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Again, Jesus isn't condemning wealth outright. He's cautioning about it. And he's also, what he is condemning is making it our treasure. You know, you see, kind of stand back and you go, well, what what should, everyone, everyone under the sound of my voice, I think you realize this, there's no one here who's not like filthy rich wealthy compared to 98% of the world, you know. There may be some differences just in this group among us, but but living in where we live, living in the nation we live in, living in a part of the country we live in, uh, you you are in the very, very upper echelon of wealth on a worldwide scale, every single one of us. Does that make us bad? I don't think so. I mean, I want to be clear about this. Material blessings aren't automatically treasures of our heart, all right? It's just stuff. It's just stuff. And God owns it all, right? We've been over this a few times. God owns every bit of it. That's, that's the frame of mind that we should have about this. What, so so what, should our, what is our proper attitude or what is our proper frame of mind about material things? I think it really boils down to two things. Really. Contentment. That's the first one. We're going to look at a couple of verses. Jesus admonished us. Paul does in, in epistles. Be content. Whether you have a lot or you have a little, the measure of your heart is, are you content? You know, they do surveys, and I'm sure you've read them, Like, if you just go out in the world and say, hey, you know, what would it take you to be content? By the way, Nate, I I might have to get a tip from you like how to shut this blower down a little bit before it blows the... I see you go over and do it, but I never pay enough attention to know how to do it. What is it? Is it right over here? I turn the thermostat down, what do I do? They do surveys to see what people think it would take to make them happy, or to make them content, and you know what they invariably find—they invariably find that uh, that no matter how much people have, their belief about being content or happy would involve having about one and a half to two times as much as they have right now. So if you have a job, you make $15 an hour, your, your frame of mind, for most people, I'm not talking about believers, but I'm just saying, if you go do an average survey of people, they think, well, if I was making about twice what I'm making, then you know everything would be good. That's crazy. Because there's always a number twice as big as the one you have, right? You could could apply it to your wage. You could apply it to your salary. You could apply it to the square footage of your home. You could apply it to the balance of your bank account. You could apply it to the number of vehicles in your, whatever. People are naturally discontent when their treasure is earthly. All right? For us, as bond servants of Christ, is contentment like an optional thing we we ought to work at? I don't think so. I think it is a it is a fruit of a new heart. It's a fruit of a heart that belongs to God. The other aspect of how we view, how we treat material things, and this is so key, stewardship. It's his stuff. It's, his, it's God's stuff whether it's in your bank account, parked in your garage, in your refrigerator, it's his stuff. It's all his stuff. He, it, his, he can bless us. Praise God, he does bless us. You know, it's a, wonderful, it's a wonderful thing to be blessed by the Lord. But all the things that, any, anything that we have materially or that we say we possess, well, possession is is like a kind of a euphemism for it's in our sphere of responsibility. All right, makes sense. They say, yeah, it makes sense, Steve. Move on to something a little more, you know, a little more meaty. Let's look at let's look at a passage here in uh, First Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to start with verse 6. But godliness actually is means of great gain when accompanied by what? Contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, so we can take nothing out of it either. And if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those is that warning those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. Probably everyone here is pretty familiar with that passage of Scripture, right? Parts of it are misquoted. You'll hear people often say, money's the root of all evil. That's not what the scripture says. Scripture says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is a heart issue. If it it gets old having me repeat that, um, I'll apologize ahead of time. The Sermon on the Mount is all about our heart. It's all about what God expects, what he requires, this is totally a hard issue contentment is a hard issue stewardship is a hard issue i want to i want to put something well first of all i'm going to i'm going to make this statement that i believe contentment and generosity are intertwined just like this in fact i'll go so far as to say i've never seen a discontent person that displayed godly generosity if you think of one, you can come tell me after the service. I've never seen a discontent person who manifested godly generosity. And I would say the converse is true. I've never seen a person that demonstrated godly generosity who wasn't content. I think those two are just inseparable. They're intertwined together. And, and what's... What are those? They're the earmarks of, of what God expects of us, right? You want to understand that? You know, there's a difference between uh, treasure and uh, profitability. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a couple statements to business people here. Um, there are a lot of people that think profit is a dirty word. Not a dirty word at all. Um, in fact, I don't know that we'll go there, but if you, in the Matthew 25, there's the parable of the talents. Everyone remember that? The, the landowner was going away, and he and he called his servants together, and, he's, and he gave him something to take care of. He gave, put, gave him responsibility over it. And when he came back, sorry, I'm trying to keep moving, so I won't stop and read the whole thing. But I think you guys know it. When he came back, what do he find? You know. He found varying degrees of profit or increase that had, that had been generated by the, by the three stewards. Right? And he praised the one that was the most profitable. And the one that went and dug a hole in the ground and, and put it in the ground, <laughs> he was pretty upset with him, Right? There was an expectation of profitability. You can be in business, and you, and you could operate your business with an objective of laying up a lot of earthly treasure. People do. And people succeed at it. Or you could run your business as a bondservant of Christ and say, the Lord has put this opportunity in front of, in front of me, in front of my business. Some of you guys are builders, you know? I've been more in manufacturing. We win a contract, and we need to go execute that contract. I can tell you from absolute uh, personal experience, there were times we made a fair amount of money and I wasn't real satisfied with our stewardship of the opportunity, all right? Why? Because we should have made if we'd have done a good job, we'd have made this percentage. We kind of fumbled around a little and fell short. There were other times that I knew the stewardship of my team in that, in that effort was extremely good, although we didn't make as much money. But we took a very tough and challenging situation. I'm not bragging. I'm not complaining. I'm just, I'm just trying to put this in the real world. We don't want to confuse profitability with the hoarding of wealth. They're not the same. Being profitable is an expectation of stewards. And, I, and for me as a business person, being profitable was was it's stewardship. If the Lord has put my hands on this hand, this plow or this steering wheel or whatever, and entrusted me with these resources and these opportunities, uh, shame on me if I squander them, right? simple stewardship. You know, you can kind of think about this in terms of, uh, you can think of this passage about treasure in terms of investment strategy. (laughs) You know? What are you going to invest in? I don't know if many of you have ever uh, spent much time with financial advisors or people like that. I haven't spent a ton of time with them. I have a little bit, and I can tell you, you know, of an instance. Okay, I'm rolling over a profit-sharing thing into an IRA, and you're, you're going to interact with these people, all right? And and it's almost, uh, I, I'm I'm not I'm not condemning them. I'm just saying, most that I've run into, they have such a different viewpoint about everything that I can't get on the same page with them. Because really, a lot of what they have to say, well, Steve, aren't you worried that your wife will... You know? No? No, I'm not worried about that. Well, but don't you want to be sure that you have an annuity to pay you... No? No, I'm not worried about that. See, so much of that is based on... So much of that is based on... Um, we, we want to nurture it in you some anxiety and a strong sense of uncertainty about the future because we have a product to sell you. <laughs> All right. And if there's somebody here selling that product, please forgive me. I'm not, I'm, I'm not trying to be harsh. But, I'm, but I will say this. Even think of, I'm jumping ahead a little bit. What is most marketing? What is most marketing thrust other than this? Create covetousness in your heart. I'm going to show you something that you're not going to be happy unless you have it, all right? Think about it. Think about ad campaigns. You're going to be stronger, better looking, live longer, more popular, you know, whatever. So much of it is based on that. We just need to be prudent about it. We we need to not be deceived. You know, I think David, the psalmist David, I'm just going to go back and look at a couple of psalms real quickly. I think David sort of got this in a unique way. That's why we love the psalms, and that's why David was described as being a man after God's heart. Was he perfect? No, we've talked about that a fair amount. He dropped the ball a few times rather badly. But his writing in the psalms is very unique in this regard. I want to draw your attention. Well, I'm, I'm going to just say this. I put Psalm 42 on my scripture list, not a particular verse, because last week, Therese led us in the song. As the deer panteth after the water, so my soul longeth after thee. And it goes on to say, I love you more than gold and silver. Only you can satisfy. That's, that's Psalm 42. Let's look at a couple verses here out of Psalm 84, which is, there are at least two worship songs you may recognize that come out of here. I just love this verse, starting with 84.10. For a day in thy courts is better than a thousand outside. By the way, I'm reading from New American Standard. I should have said that at the beginning. Yours might read slightly different. A day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. These kinds of things are why David was called a man after God's heart because David said, he goes on to say, let's just finish it, I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. What he's saying there is, I just want to be on the porch. (laughs) I just want to be on the porch where I can look in because if I could behold your presence, if I could behold your beauty, that's worth more to me than a thousand days of anything else I can imagine. Hunting, bugling elk on a great fall morning or, or fishing the gunny gorge, you know? I mean, do we, do we enjoy those things? Oh man, I do. They're fantastic. And I'm not knocking them. They're just God's blessings to us. But compared to being in God's court, Nate, I'll bet we won't even think about it. It won't even cross our mind. We'll be so blown away to be in the presence of the creator who spoke all of those things into existence by the power of his word. See, David had that in his heart. David's heart was after some eternal treasure. He just... One of the words we learned years ago said, um, uh, help me, Peg. um, I would rather be a doorkeeper in your house. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in your house than to take my fate on myself. I love that hard attitude because that's the hard attitude that God's looking for from us. I want to look at the parable of the rich young ruler Matthew 19 we'll get on from treasure to eyesight here in a, in a couple minutes Matthew 19 I'm going to start with uh, well I'm just going to jump to verse 21 you guys know the story he said, good teacher, what do I need to be, do? And Jesus said, here are the commandments. He said, I've kept all those. What? Jesus made this statement to him. If you wish to be complete or perfect, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you shall have treasure. Whoops, look at that. You shall have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. And we all know what happened. The man, he went away sad. He went away sad because he owned much property, it says in verse 22. And this is is the lead-in to the verse we looked at a few minutes ago about why it's so difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, if you think about this, why would selling his treasures and giving it to the poor have put his treasure in heaven? That seemed like a silly question. Was it that the poor needed the money and them getting the proceeds of his estate? No. No. Jesus was drilling right down to his heart. He was drilling right down to his heart at the very thing where he knew the hang-up would be. And the reason that the rich young ruler walked away sad was because his heart wouldn't change. He could not not change his heart to say, I want my treasure somewhere other than where I have it right now, right? He had laid up a lot of earthly treasure. But that was of more value to him than heavenly treasure, eternal treasure. Think about this. What if your brother or your sister or someone in your family or, you know, One of your brothers or sisters in the Lord came to you and said, yep, um, I decided I'm going to sell everything, give it all away. How many of us would go, whoa, 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 wait a minute. let's wait a minute here. Let's not get carried away. (laughs) We'd talk them out of it, wouldn't we? Why don't you just experiment with uh, giving a little bit more than you've been giving? Or, you know, come on, after all, you have your family to think of and your retirement plans, and you worked hard for it, and you deserve it. You know? We could, we could, we could stumble someone. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. If you came to me and said, you're going to sell everything and give it away, I at least would say, are you sure? Are you sure you heard from God about this? You know, are you sure this is sure it's what you're supposed to do? But I've said it before. What Jesus taught here was very radical, and what he asked of the rich young ruler was radical. Right? He could ask us to do something radical. I think in the Sermon on the Mount he does he does ask us to do things and to think things. That are radical, and by that I mean they're radical in terms of the economy and the governance of the world around us. I'll summarize treasure and then we'll move on. You know, it's not the money or the stuff, or the lack of the money or the stuff, it's neither of those. Our heart. its so where our heart puts the value. Our heart establishes what is treasured to us. It wasn't established independent from us. And it's true for every person. All right. I want to reread a couple of verses because we're, we're going to move on. And if, if there's part of this that I'm maybe a little bit excited to, to bring out today, this is it. Because as is often the case, you know when you go to prepare... Uh, to speak it's very common for me to discover something that I really hadn't seen or understood before and such is the case where we're going I'm going to go to verse 22 the lamp of the body is the eye if therefore your eye is clear your whole body will be full of light but if your eye is bad your whole body will be full of darkness if therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. You know, Jesus, taught, Jesus is explaining something spiritual here, and as he often did, he's putting it in very physical terms that those people that were listening to him could understand. They understood sight, they understood that what came, that, that light from outside came in, if they could see and they also understood that if you were blind, that wasn't the case. If you're blinded, nothing's coming in through the eyes. It's dark inside. But Jesus isn't given a, a medical lesson here or an, an anatomy lesson. That's not what he's talking about at all. This is a spiritual principle. and I, and I'll just confess to you, I probably read this passage a lot of times and went, hmm, you know what what exactly is he saying there? What exactly is he saying? Yes, it's obvious, a clear eye, a good eye, a healthy eye, lets light in. And it's also obvious that a blind eye or a bad eye won't. So there's that aspect, but but I always felt like there's something more to it, and I think there is. I want to look at a couple scriptures. I want to tie something together here. First, I want to go back to Proverbs. Proverbs 23. And I'm gonna, just going to ask you to hang on to a couple thoughts before I can weave them together. Proverbs 23, verses 6 and 7. And you may say, wow, Steve, I'm reading mine, and it doesn't say anything about eyes. Uh... Well, that's because most of the translations, uh, the words have been substituted a little bit. I'm reading out of New American Standard, starting with verse 6, Do not eat the bread of a selfish man or desire his delicacies, for as he thinks within himself, so is he. But I also want to tell you the literal words that are there. We're... we're New American Standard says selfish. The literal Hebrew is evil eye. Evil eye. And where it says in verse 7, for as he thinks within himself, it literally is reckons in his soul. All right? Now hold that thought. Now let's go to Matthew 20. Because to me this is a, this is kind of a key that unlocks something in a way that I hadn't seen it before. This is a parable of the vine- parable of the vineyard owner. And I'm going to read the whole thing. Starting with verse 1, Matthew 20. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, you too go into the vineyard and whatever is right I will give you. And so they went. Again he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing, and he said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day long? And they said to him, Because no one hired us. And he said to them, You too, go into the vineyard. And when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first and when those hired about the 11th hour, these are the ones hired just before quitting time, all right, each one received a denarius. And when those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more, and they also received each one a denarius. And when they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, these last men have worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us, and have who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Do you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way, but I wish to give this last man the same as to you. Verse 15. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own or is your eye envious the literal word is evil is your eye evil because I am generous and the literal greek word is good now i don't know how much of you how much any of you've ever thought about the parable of the vineyard owner but I'm just going to ask you this, and I'd, and I'd like you to be honest, you don't have to like wave your hand or or say it out loud. When you read this parable, how many of you have something inside of you that says, that's not fair? <laughs> that smites against your sense of fairness, All right. Like I said, you can keep your mouth shut, you don't have to say anything, but Give you a quick history lesson. Anybody know about the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938? That's when the government got in the business of saying. See, see, when the vineyard owner here said, "Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own?" He had not encountered the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938 because when he said that, he did have control over it and it was his to do with as he chose. We aren't in it. We're in a A little bit different time now, and it keeps changing. I don't know if any of you have ever uh, dealt with the Department of Labor. If you have some employees, and if you ever get to where you have quite a few employees, uh, believe me, they like to come crawling around, and uh, they like to perform audits. And the basis of their audit is the Fair Labor Standards Act 1938. This is the one where minimum wages got set, overtime rules, child labor. I'm not bashing the standard of the act. Don't anyone misunderstand me. But we but we changed. We went from a time where what you owned was yours to do with as you chose to a time where someone else says, uh, uh, well, no. Within these boundaries, you have to stay within these boundaries. Why did the vineyard owner say, or is your I, evil, because I am good. And I want to point out one more thing to you. This, this word for I that we read back in Matthew 6, 22, excuse me, 23, where it says, but if your eye is bad, it's the same word. In the Greek, it's the exact same word. Where Jesus said, or my translation says in Matthew 6, 23, if your eye is bad your whole body will be full of darkness that is the same Greek word that's over here in chapter 20 when the vineyard keeper said or is your eye evil is your eye envious and I think going back to what we read in Proverbs which of course wasn't written in Greek it's written in Hebrew now I don't claim to be a Hebrew scholar but I know how to read commentators pretty pretty well <laughs> and one of the things that you find here there's a there's a Hebrew um, there's a Hebrew concept or recognition Rick maybe you can shed some light on this for you, you ever hear of the evil eye the evil eye as a, a it's a Hebrew concept and the evil eye basically means this it's an eye that covets something that someone else has. And it's even goes beyond that. I want the thing you have, and furthermore, I don't want you to have it. Sounds pretty evil, doesn't it? Sounds real evil. This, this is a Hebrew concept to the best of my understanding. I think there's a thread here. I think that What we see the vineyard owner saying in Matthew 20 sheds light for me on, no pun intended, but sheds light for my understanding of what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 6. Okay? We know he wasn't just talking about physical vision and physical blindness. We know he was talking about something spiritual. Here's what I think an evil eye really means. I go with this Hebrew concept as I understand it. And if you really, if your eye is evil, the earmarks of it, the signs of it are, you're coveting something. You are not going to be able to rejoice over generosity that you see someone else receiving that you didn't receive. Hear me now. There's going to be grumbling and there's going to be discontentment. And it's based, and now I'm going back to that verse in Proverbs, it's based on my own reckoning of fairness. That's why I ask after I read the vineyard, keeper, uh, the vineyard owner's parable, how many of you do you read that and you go, well, that wasn't fair. That wasn't fair. What fair for the guys that worked all day to get the same thing as the guys who got hired just before quit time? Well, hold on a minute. Hold on a minute. Why do we think it's not fair? Probably because we're four, gen- four or five generations past being into the Fair Labor Standards Act in 1938. And please don't anybody misunderstand me. I'm not saying if I was the vineyard owner that I would do the same thing or we ought to do the same thing. I mean I, I think a, a certainly a scriptural principle is equity and fair fair treatment. All right. But but what I'm driving at is this. I think the evil eye that Jesus is talking about back in Matthew six is the same evil eye that the vineyard owner is talking about here. And what it is, it's how we look at something. It's how we view something. It's the it's the lens we view it through, and it's a lens that's that's jealous and covetous and cannot rejoice, cannot simply rejoice in the fact that you got something great, it has to go, yeah, but I didn't get it. This happens all around us all the time, right? You've seen it. I've, I've seen this with people. And it's heartbreaking. It's literally heartbreaking because it keeps them, it keeps them discontent it keeps them from having peace in their heart because they're so fixated on what someone else has that they don't have or whether or not they think things are going down. The fair, in a, in a way that's fair to the best of their understanding. You know what? Um, I'm probably only halfway through, So. We better find a stopping point here, right? There's a fair amount left here. Um, the next, the the one next verse is a standalone verse. Can't serve God and mammon. Jesus isn't saying um, you're not capable of it, or, you, or he's making a statement. No, it doesn't work that way. People will people will often say that um, with regard to the with regard to treasure or these other things we're studying today that they're um, oh what's the best word I'm not sure I can think of it they, they, they say no I'm good but if you watch their lives and if you watch, what they do with the resources. Um, you might draw a different conclusion than they did. I think that's what Jesus, Jesus is setting this benchmark and he's calling everybody into account on it. He said, you cannot serve God and mammon. You can't negotiate some percentage. Because I've seen this a lot of times. I think people tend to think, well, um, I can do, I, you know, I can do about a, 80-20 split here, you know. As long as I can, as long as I can hang on to 20% of the mammon part, I'll. In re- Israel, even tried to do that. You know, the, there was one point where they were going to worship Baal or Baal and Jehovah at the same time, but they were going to be sure that Jehovah got the the ox and Baal just got the ram or so. I, I didn't even go back to that scripture. Jesus is saying, no, no. It's 100% because it's your heart. And your heart is either 100% locked into earthly, worldly things. Treasure, mammon. Or your heart is 100% belongs to God. And therefore, you're you're laying up treasures in heaven. Let me make a couple of summary statements. What we're not getting into here is anxiety. Uh, I'll give anxiety one minute. Jesus didn't say, try not to. He said, stop it. literal translation, he just just said, stop it. Don't be anxious about these things. You know people that say, well, I'm a worrier. Ah, That's just how it is. That's my nature. That's my self-identity. I can't help it. I try not to do it. Jesus said, "Don't do it." And I'll and I'll put this shot across everyone's bow, and then uh, and then I'll give you all a rest. <laughs> At the end of the day, worry and anxiety are a manifestation of lack of trust in God. That's what it boils down to. We're worried about where food's coming from or clothes are coming from or any of these things i mean this is what jesus said your father loves you she's brought it out last week your father loves you he provided these things he knows what you need he's taking care of you don't worry worrying isn't going to change anything anyway none of us can change anything jesus said it's kind of an interesting thing you couldn't add a cubit to your lifespan. well the cubit's 18 inches, your lifespan is like in years. There's a couple different versions, and your ESV probably says uh, you can't add a, an hour or something to, to the span of your life. And then the other one is, I can't add you know, height by straining and thinking about it. They're both true. I think you can go with either translation. The point is, you're not going to change anything by being anxious about it or worrying about it, right? What does God... What does God want from us? What does he expect from us? Please don't go away from what's been said here today thinking um, I need to work on treasuring my money and stuff less and treasuring God more. I need to work on clearing up my vision. I need to do a better job of splitting my, my service between God and mammon. I need to try to worry less and trust more. Please do go away with this. God wants your heart. God wants your whole heart. He requires your whole heart. He will not ease your way. He will not work your way. He wants your heart. He wants your heart changed. And if we love the Lord, we love our heart, soul, and mind, and our neighbor as ourself, which Jesus said, all the commandments, Right here, guess what? Our treasure will be in heaven. It won't be on earth. Our treasure will be in heaven. Our eye will see clearly. It won't be a bad or an evil eye. It won't be covetous. It won't be jealous. It won't be uh, walking around feeling unfairly treated or making our own reckoning of what we have, how something should be, how something should have been fair. We'll serve God, not mammon, and we'll trust God and we'll walk in freedom from worry and anxiety. That's what the Word says. Thank you for your patience. I love you guys. And, uh, I do appreciate your patience. I'll yield to us communion this morning.